It's the beginning of a new year and beginning of a new season. We thought that it would be appropriate to begin a, a new series as we, for this year. Uh, we'll begin a series studying the book of 1 John, John's letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus uh, that is a constant reminder of both the fundamentals of our faith, but then also uh, the reasons that we have to rejoice, to have uh, to, to be delighted in, in our God. It's a reminder of His great love for us. We're titling the series um, Authentic Christianity, uh, Seeking What's Real in a World of Fake. And the reason for that is because all around us we are inundated with all sorts of ideas about what the truth is, what God is like, and where we will find uh, our, our ultimate source of strength and direction. We want to go back and just remind those who are already believers, who understand uh, that the truth that has been given once and for all does not change, and realizing that we have people who are seeking from time to time, or hope and, and hopefully even increasing, that uh, come and participate with us that may not be as aware or clear. We want to lay out for them the clear declaration of God through the Apostle John of what is real and what will ultimately bring fulfillment, direction, and purpose in this life. And so John, through the better part of the first part of this year, Camper and I, and perhaps some others will share in this, will be uh, looking at, at this letter, which has a spiraling effect, so some subjects we'll come back to, uh, we'll look at, uh, but overall it is, it's a beautiful, relatively short letter that we begin our study of this morning. We'll begin our study with the prologue, or the first four verses. We'll be reading them in a moment. Let me take these off. Uh, not only thing that began, I told them in the first service, uh, and also new is my glasses and prescription. I was able to avoid the uh, bifocals, but I have the problem of I can't read anything close to me if I have my Bibles on, and I can't see anything beyond the first row if the glasses are off. To compound the issue is, while I've always admired those guys that can put their glasses on to study or whatever and take them off, and they seem so scholarly, I feel like, and I look like a goof. So anyway, I'm hoping that this will be a bad habit or an, uh, or an irritating habit that you will soon learn to overlook. Although, ironically, I said that in the first service, and I never put my glasses back on, which may explain why I couldn't see the clock. But anyway, that's... Um, A bunch of people are going to be scratching their eyes here in a little while. Anyway, that's... Uh... First John, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. May the Lord bless us with His Word. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, as we commit this time to the study of your word, I pray that uh, even as you have promised, your spirit would be at work within us. 
for we are in need of your spirit to show us what it is that you would like for us to understand. The words in some ways are simple and other ways are complex, and yet the riches are deep. And apart from you opening our eyes and availing them to us, then we, we don't benefit from them. I pray that you would be at work on any heart that is hardening, that you would open it, perhaps even break it, that the seed of your word would be able to be implanted. Pray for hearts that are broken and are hoping for mending, that your grace that is evident in this passage would be incredible encouragement. I pray for the one who doubts, who wonders, who may be wandering. That the promises of your word, the beauty of your son, would draw them back, draw them to you. That all of us behold your face by faith, and even in our minds as we consider this word picture before us. Lord, bless us, shape us, that we may be a blessing to others. I pray in Christ. Amen. So the apostle says and just begins, we write these things so that our joy may be complete. And that seems to be his objective in writing this letter or, or certainly in writing these first few verses at the beginning of, of this letter. His objective, his purpose is joy, complete joy for himself because he's saying, I write this so that our joy, and so he means he's part of one who will benefit from that and increase in joy. His joy is somehow not yet completed and he wants more of it. He's part of a larger group, most likely the apostles, and as he's writing, he writes in the plural form, he's writing representing the apostles who were with Christ and were going around and declaring Christ, that their joy would be complete. But it's also not really a selfish thing because there's a mutuality here that we need to see uh, in, in this text. Because his purpose is also not just for himself, but for the readers, for the hearers, for all believers, to also experience joy. When he says our, he means we, we all, all who trust in Christ. They're sharing what they know so that those who are hearing would be able to have the joy that the apostles have, and yet there's something incomplete about the apostles' joy that would be made complete by knowing that others are sharing the joy that they have. And so the purpose that John lays out here is, is really very simple. He wants all believers to have joy. He wants them all to be filled with joy. And it suggests to us, and we need to understand that if you are a, a Christian, then you should expect to be filled with joy. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a writer in the, and a pastor, minister, a profound thinker in a generation ago, and while he was commenting on this particular verse, he elaborates. He says, Lloyd-Jones says this, Christian people in this world are meant to be full of joy. That's what we are called to. And we are failing in our Christian witness unless we are experiencing and manifesting it. So as Lloyd-Jones looks at this, he 
understands and what John clearly is saying is that we as Christians should expect to be filled with joy. That's our purpose. That's John's purpose. That's his desire for us. That's what he wants for us. And then he takes it a little further, whether you're able to go with him or not there. What he says is really rather profound and provocative. Because he's saying, because that is our purpose, and that's what God wants, and that's why God inspired John, and the mutuality is to bring joy so that those who hear would have joy, the apostles would have joy, all who are believers would have joy. That's what God wants for us, to not have fullness of joy. Is missing the point of why we exist, missing the point of why we were made Christ, missing the point of being followers of Christ. And he's not talking about just experiencing joy, having a little taste of it. He's talking about being intoxicated by it, overwhelmed, full, complete joy. That's what we're called to. And if that's not true of us, at least Lloyd-Jones, if not John, is suggesting not only are we missing it, we're violating, we're missing what we're called to be, which another way of putting that is in sin. It's pretty profound. It's pretty in your face because it's either have joy or you're in sin, which to me is not something that prompts me to joy, prompts me to worry. And I begin to think about what is it that John is saying and, and how can he be saying this? I mean, it, it, it sounds to me a nice thing that he's saying there. I mean, who's, how many of you would get Christmas cards over the season that don't hope that you have joy, you know? Thinking of you, hope you survive. Um, you know, that's just not going to sell. Joy gets thrown around quite a bit, but I don't think what John is saying is some naive, Pollyannish type of sentiment that you would read in a Christmas card from Hallmark or even in a yearbook, somebody had written it to, to you. John is very sober about what he's writing. He's very serious about what he's writing. And because it's such a confrontation to our own experience, it'd be reasonable for us to say, how in the way? It's just, it's just difficult to swallow. I mean, most of us are very well aware that life can be very difficult. I read a study recently about laughter. It was a study that was done that said that the average child in the United States, or at least as they were studied, I don't remember what the random sample was, laughs, laughs out loud over 400 times a day. But about the age of 12, they, real, they recognize that there is a, a very clear and definitive drop that starts to occur at about the age of 12 and continues very definitively, until reaching adulthood. And the average adult in America laughs out loud less than 15 times a day. 15 would be a good day. 15 is when you go to the comedy club. 15 is, you know, everything is going your way. And it begs the question, then, why have we lost our laughter? I think that the obvious answer is for anyone that, has, that thinks about it is because life is hard. About the age of 12, you're starting to realize not everything is about you. Not everybody agrees with you. Not everybody lives for you. Not everybody does what is right. Not everybody is nice that's around you. You become aware of circumstances not that directly affect you, but even the ones that are beyond, that are conscious of other people. As you get a little bit older, you become aware of things that are going on in your community, or at that age, perhaps in your school, but you're aware of things that are going on in the world. And the more we are aware of, the more we look at this world and say, this world is tough. 
This world is filled with joy robbers, things that don't promote joy. There's horrible things that we hear about that we are aware of, things that would not encourage anybody to laugh. In fact, some of the things that we face, some of the things that we see, some of the things that some of you may be experiencing would diminish your outlook on things that even when some things are fine, it's painful to laugh. Now John's saying, I'm writing this so that your joy, that you'd have joy, which all of us would be in favor of, so that your joy would be in full. Most of us can go for that. And if you accept what Lloyd-Jones says, and, and I do, and if you're not experiencing that, then you're sinning against God. That seems to be a bummer as well, unless we take God seriously at his promises. But it does make us wonder about John as he's writing these things. If he's really serious about this, how can he write such a thing? And it's not because John's unaware of the difficulties of the world, the difficulties that people face. He's very well aware of that. He's very well aware of the people that he's writing to. He knows them. He has known them. He's writing, as I mentioned in the, before we read the text, to a church in Ephesus, a church that was established by the Apostle Paul, benefited from Paul's staying with them. He stayed with them longer than any other church that he served. He poured himself into the people, instructing them, teaching them all that he understood about what God had revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and all of the blessings that come to those that God loves. And when it came time for Paul to move on, he handpicked his protege, Timothy. There may be nobody else into whom Paul invested as much as he invested into Timothy. There was nobody else that was endowed with as much of the knowledge that Paul had. And he makes Timothy the teacher, pastor, leader in that church. And so he continues to teach them all of the scriptures about the glory of God's love for those um, who, who are in Christ. Timothy moves on. Somewhere in the time, tradition tells us that they had a man named Apollos who was a, a, a speaker, a, a pr true preacher, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he served them, taught them God's word and truth. And then after he had left, some time had passed, John actually moved into the area for a while, which was good because he got to know the people. But now that John is off the scene, he is also now hearing reports that these people who had been so blessed with perhaps the greatest lineup of pastors in history are now being exposed to false teaching. False teaching coming on the TV. They didn't have TVs, but the false teachings around them. Few people in the church were listening to those TV preachers and coming in and not innocently asking questions. Others began curious studying, and then even within the church, the false teachings began to germinate, began to spread. It didn't take over the church, but it weakened the church. It weakened the faith. It weakened the understanding that people had. And with every false teaching, that stole from people's faith. The joy decreased. The joy that they had, the joy that they were promised because they had no basis for their joy. John's aware that those people like us live in such an environment where there are questions and questions are good. but depending on how we handle the question is not necessarily as good. There are questions that lead to deeper faith and there's questions that lead away from the faith and John's aware of that and that's a joy robber. John's aware of the difficulties that the people had. 
In fact, John ratchets it up a notch in a way that some of us might be uncomfortable in saying when he's talking about the world and the difficulties of this life. At the end of this letter, in chapter 5, verse 19, John says something in the first part of which we, we would uh, agree with and we would like. John is saying as he's wrapping up the letter, we know that we are from God. It's an encouragement to those who belong to God, those who have faith. But then what he says is also interesting. He says, but the world, is filled, uh, but the, uh, but the world lies in the power of the evil one. So John's saying, life's not just hard. This world's not just a hard place. He's saying that this entire world is in, under the influence and even affected by the power of an, the evil one who is bent on destruction, hatefulness, the ultimate joy robber. So John's very well aware that life is hard, and he, as again, he says life is not only hard, but the, the world around us is is corrupted by evil. It's not all evil. It's not 100% evil. But there's nothing that's not impacted by it. There's nothing that's not corrupted by it. And so because it's corrupted, because it is broken, because it is evil, it causes brokenness. It causes tears. It robs us of joy. And yet John, with that understanding, he's just anxious that these people would have joy despite whatever circumstances that they are in, despite the fact that they, like us, live in a world that is broken, that is impacted is infected with evil. He expects that these people are going to have joy. Now, I'm going to stop here for just a second because there's a couple of observations that I think just as I was thinking about this that we, we need to, I think are helpful for us to think about. The first one is, is simply this. Again, reiterating what I've already said. Believers are meant to be filled with this joy, filled with joy, according to John, in this world and not just in the next. There's a lot of Christian traditions that focus all their attention on what's going to happen now. This world stinks, but, you know, one day things will be fine. That's not what John is writing here. He's not saying, I'm writing this so that one day you'll know that one day we'll all have joy. He's saying, I'm writing this so that you will have joy. It's a clear implication of this. Nobody's going to write the, read this letter and, and assume that John is meaning just someday. None of you received a Christmas card from somebody in your family, somebody that's very close to you, that wishes you joy, and you're saying, oh, that means when I die. I mean, I hope they meant like then, now, during this holiday season and beyond. And that's what John, anybody who reads John's letter is going to read this and say, I want you to have joy now, not just in the future. And so it's important for us to realize that because if that's the expectation, then we're constantly asking ourselves, do I have joy? Am I filled with joy or am I not? The expectation is that we would have joy now. But I also notice this, if joy has to be made complete, it must be common for our joy to deplete. Because otherwise, there would be no reason to fill it back up again. So if you are somebody who is sitting here and realizing your call, the promise, the expectation is that you'd be filled with joy, and you're not, I think it makes you normal. It certainly makes you like me. My thermostat, like joy, would read pretty much like the weather projections for this past year. It's 10 degrees here, it's 60 degrees here. Just, you know, one day, the next, depending on circumstances, regardless, my joy seems attached to that all too often. And while I know that's not what God has called us to, and that's not what John is trying to build us to, that's my experience. I think it's a shared experience, and I think John, by saying that we want to make joy complete, our joy, the apostles' joy, is somehow not complete. There's a need of refilling. 
I think from what we see and what John is saying here is that Christians are not excused to live in a state of despair or depression just because the world is the way that it is. It's not that we should have joy, but God just doesn't know the world we live in. He's writing this letter to people who live in a world that is frankly not much different than ours. Listening to what John says, we also see that Christians are to see the world realistically. I mean, if John's saying, look, the whole world is, is filled, influenced by evil, he's wanting the Christians to understand the circumstances in which they live. He's wanting them to be honest about it. And part of that is to look at the world, but not only look at it on the surface alone, because the surface alone is, is not the reality. We can look and focus on all of the beauty that's around us because it certainly is present and it is there, both in the creation and the relationships that you... And that would encourage us, but that's not living in the reality. But neither is looking at the news or whatever hardships you've experienced that are robbing you of joy and assuming that that's the full reality. Christians look beyond just the surface into the full reality as God has re revealed it. But if we're also a people who are to look at the world realistically, God says that and it, both good and bad, we're a people that are not called to numb ourselves in any way from that reality. As some of us are prone to do. Whether it's through the feel-good activities that sometimes we can engage in in the church, whether it's from too much participation in alcohol, which dims your perception of reality. Drugs, which would draw you from within reality. Or for those who are younger, at least mostly, would be just vegging out in video games so that you don't have to deal with reality for a time. The call here is to have joy, even regardless, despite reality. And it's also a call to say Christians are not excused to withdraw or try to attempt to withdraw themselves from the world by, to, in order to escape reality by only affiliating with other believers, pretending that the world out there doesn't exist. Or if they exist, they're only for us to throw Bible tracts to until they become like us. John is dealing with people who are engaged in a real world, a real world that is filled with beauty, a real world that is filled with pitfalls, real world that robs of joy and says you to have joy nevertheless and so the natural question should be how do we have joy if we have to face reality much less how do we have complete joy i believe john touches on this and he gives us two things that we need to understand the first as he begins this is he tells us that joy is rooted in the word of life now, John devotes the first three verses, or the better part of the first three verses, to a description of the person of Jesus Christ. So he obviously has Jesus in mind when he is talking about where our, our roots need to be. John says, look, we, we've seen him with our eyes. We've heard him. We've touched him. Now, part of the reason that John gives that full description is not just because of the beautiful poetry. He's directly confronting the false teachers and those who have had some of their joy stolen because of the false teachers. Because among the false teachings was that, well, Jesus was not the promised Messiah. And another one was that 
well, Jesus was the Messiah, but Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh. Jesus came, he was kind of like a ghost, a spirit, spirit of God. He taught, he did all the things, but he wasn't in the flesh. Now, that second one, in some ways, may seem to be relatively benign, because at least someone named Jesus came, and Jesus did all the miracles, and Jesus did those things, and God was at work within him. And so people can hold to that, to that error, and perhaps, at least initially, not seem to have their faith corrupted very much until they begin to ask the questions about whether or not a ghost could actually be put in our place. Can a ghost die? Can a ghost be crucified? Can a ghost be a substitute for a person because he's not subject to the same temptations as we are, has not sinned as we have? It's not a legitimate exchange. It certainly doesn't fulfill the prophecies and the requirements that God has for the punishment of sin. And so while somebody might embrace that on the front end and say, well, it doesn't really matter to me whether Jesus was in the flesh or whether Jesus was in the form of an image, it was just some image that, that came, it was a, a, a spirit. When they realize, apart from Jesus having come in the flesh, there is no atonement for our sin. We are still in our sin. In which case, that would be a, a real joy robbery for anyone who is a believer. And so John is confronting that, saying, look, we saw him which in any court of law is a, a, a helpful attribute. Everybody's looking for eyewitnesses. And John said, not just I, but we. We saw him with our own eyes. We heard him with our ears. We listened to his teaching, talking about Jesus being with them over the course of the three years, teaching them everything from all of the scriptures and how all of the scriptures pointed to him. Jesus said, we touched him. I'm not sure, I mean, Paul, I mean, John says we, we touched him, and I'm not sure exactly what he's referring to or any particular event, but you spend three years with a guy walking along, camping, serving, you're bound to bump into one or another once in a while. But the effect is John saying, we know he was real. I don't know why he stopped with just these senses. He could have gone further. These were 12 disciples, including Jesus, 13 men walking in the desert in the hot. I think he could have said, we smelled them too, but I guess that's not very poetic. There's nothing wrong with that because it just verifies Jesus was fully a man who came in the flesh. And that's what John is trying to testify. He came with the clear implication leading to the whole purpose that he came. Well, John doesn't deal with that in this particular verse. He does deal with it in the letter. The whole purpose of Jesus coming in the flesh is in order that he could lay down his life for us, taking the penalty of our sin upon himself so that that penalty would be paid and it would no longer be a debt that is upon our shoulders. We would be set free. John is testifying to that Jesus, and he says, we know, we've seen We've heard, we've touched, we know he was the real thing. And what does John say about this guy? He who was from the beginning, or that which was from the beginning. Now, the question would be, when is the beginning? I mean, that's pretty impressive to begin with. Does John mean from the beginning of the time of their ministry? I don't think so. Jesus himself said, before Abraham was, I, I am. The scriptures teach us before the foundations of the earth were laid, Jesus had existed. These are poetic pictures to say, in one sense, there is no beginning 
But when there was a beginning, a tangible beginning of this earth, Jesus was there. Genesis 1 testifies to the fact that God said, let us make and Jesus was there. All things were created by him, and they're for him, and they're sustained by him. And John is saying, he's from the beginning, he came and became flesh. He was incarnated. He who was from the beginning was with the Father. The fellowship from the beginning, he's talking about the deity and the humanity of the person of Christ, testifying to those things very clearly. The root of our joy has to go into who Jesus is and what he's done. But the other thing that we need to see about this being rooted in the word of life is that John is not just talking about the person of Jesus. He's talking about the message about and from Jesus. Scholars differ, but most good scholars agree that the word of life here is actually not talking about the person of Jesus, but it's talking about the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel that Jesus brought, that Jesus fulfilled. I will spare you the detailed and uh, linguistics that have brought them to that conclusion, and who am I to disagree with them? But part of my thinking as I was studying that was thinking, well, what difference does it make? I mean, it's a good poetic parallel to what we know of John opening his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. I mean, it, it certainly is a beautiful poetic parallel, but the language, linguistic, is focusing on different words, and so it's not talking about the, the, the poetry of the person of Christ, but what Jesus came to do. And again, as my thinking through this, I was thinking that it, it may not make that much difference in, in one sense because... Without the reality of the person, there is no message. I mean, John's not here trying to promote some myth. Just believe in an idea, and somehow that would be sufficient. John wants real joy, not joy superficially. But then I started thinking that the reality of the person is not of particular much value either if there is not a message. Jesus bumped into a lot of people during his 30-some years on this earth. Just because somebody saw him, bumped into him, even heard him speak, doesn't mean that they gained any benefit if they did not understand what he was proclaiming, that he had come to be the substitute, that he was the promised Messiah, that in him our sins are forgiven and we are able to have life. If they didn't know that, they would not necessarily respond to him. And even physically bumping into him would have been no benefit to most. There are obviously exceptions, some lady grabbing his hem, but she already believed. And so there are some practical benefits for us realizing what I think some of the scholars are suggesting to us that while everything is rooted in the person of Christ, we also live our lives according to the message about Christ, the words that give life. I mean, if you think about it this way, is that it's, the question is, do we believe 
that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, or do we not? And if we answer that yes, then we are told by faith that it's been given to us as a gift from God. We now know that we belong to God. Our sins are forgiven. We are forgiven. Grace has been given to us. We've appropriated it by faith, by believing. That's the difference between life and death is how you apply, how you respond to the message of the person. But it's not even just how we live or die. It's how we live every day. Colossians 2.6 says, just as you received him, so now live in him. In other words, it's a reminder to us that the question of the truths of the gospel, that we receive him by believing who he is, repenting of our sin, is not just how we get into the club. It's how we live our lives day by day. That's how we become free from the feelings of guilt that come from actual guilt because day by day we're constantly wandering, rebelling, seeking after something else. And so the gospel is life. That gospel message that is rooted in the person of Christ is continually at work, even as we sang in, in, in our song, Unseen and Yet a Source is doing something that's promoting joy. A guy I knew who had a house in the town that I grew up in always had a very green lawn. Peculiar, because he didn't know anything about lawn keeping. He didn't work particularly hard. But no matter what everybody else's lawn looked like, his was green every spring, every summer. Whether there was rain or whether there was no rain. His lawn looked good. His lawn was bright green, and everybody else's were various shades of green and brown. The only problem that with this house was that every time it rained, his basement filled up with water. He was curious about the water more than he was about the green. Again, he didn't care, but it was, it was something that he had thought of until one of his neighbors, who happened to be uh, in active a lawn keeper or, or worked hard on his lawn, told him that the issue was that under his house, ran a subterranean river. And so that in dry years when there was no rain, no external uh, sources of nourishment for the grass, his yard was able to gain the moisture from underneath because the river was running directly underneath his, his house and his yard, where the neighbors didn't have direct access to that. And so his yard was always green regardless of the external circumstances. And when the rain came pouring down, the underground river would overflow and turn his basement into a beach. The reason that that's significant for us is that that's exactly the way the gospel works. The message of the word of life, the words that explain to us the significance of the person of Jesus are always at work within the life of the believer. And when the external circumstances are dry and maybe even miserable, there is a source when we are connected to it, when we are focused on it, when we are rooted, when our roots go down into it, that is always giving us sustenance. And then in those seasons when grace flows like rain, our hearts overflow with joy. And so the first thing we need to understand is that our our lives need to be rooted in the word of life. The person of Christ and the message of the gospel 
for us to have access to the joy, not just joy. We can experience joy in any number of ways, but the joy that, Paul, that John is writing about, and some call it the New Testament joy. It's a joy that comes from God. It's a joy that is not fleeting because the source never runs empty and never goes away. But while it's rooted in the word of life, it's experienced in fellowship, in fellowship with God. That's what John says. John is speaking here and saying that he has, uh, it writes in, in verse 3, we have that which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel becomes a glue that binds them together in their fellowship. Fellowship's kind of an odd word. It's not one that's used in most circles. We use it freely in the church. People outside the church in most communities probably think we're a little weird. Most people, if you were asked, they assume it has something to do with food. Um, it technically doesn't. Also here in academic circles. In academic circles, it's, there's, there are fellows. There's a fellowship of, and again, I don't, I don't know, nobody's ever invited me to be part of one. Probably a good reason for that. I never studied when I was in college, so I uh, don't have the credentials for it. But it is a, a, a collection, a network, a group of people who have a, a shared experience, understanding, expertise, committed to one another and committed to a particular purpose, and, and they are, they're connected by that shared experience, shared purpose. And it's the same as the basis of the fellowship that John is talking about here. He's saying, you know, our fellow, you can join our fellowship if, and our fellowship is with God the Father and with Jesus Christ the Son. And it comes on the basis of the same shared experience of receiving the promises of God in the person of Christ. Embracing and living according to the gospel. That's the basis of, of the fellowship. And that fellowship, it's an interesting word because John could have just said, you know, if you have Christ, you have salvation. He expresses it that way elsewhere. The scriptures does. It would be appropriate. But John chooses not to use that. He uses another word entirely. He uses this word fellowship. Look, if you, we proclaim this to you, not just so that you would have salvation so you can be saved, but so you can have fellowship with God the Father. And I think the significance of that is because it shows fellowship is even greater. It encompasses the salvation, but it's even greater. See, it's possible for somebody to be saved and to have absolutely no relationship with the one who saves. Imagine a fire that is taking place and a fireman breaks in and rescues the family and after turning them over to the EMTs, he goes on his business ser serving and helping other people. The people who are rescued, the people who are saved may never again run into that fireman who saved them and saved their life. There is no basis of relationship. What John is saying is that when we are saved, God does not act in that way, or God is not distant, but God saves us into a fellowship, into a communion. The word is koinonia, and communion is what it means. We, it's, it's an emphasis of the oneness with him. He doesn't just save us so that we can go on our way and he can go about his business of running the world. He, through that message, brings us into relationship with him. There's an intimacy. There is a connection that will not be broken. And so it's a picture of salvation, but it's an even greater picture of salvation because it's not merely forgiveness. It is the experience of ongoing love. It's important that we understand that this is how 
joy is experienced because a lot of us get this wrong. A lot of us get the idea that if I could just only get away, just me and God, then I can rekindle the joy. While retreat and solitude are good at times, that's not the way God has designed us. He's designed us that we are to live in community. Some of you grew up in churches that probably sang the the beautiful old song, I come to the garden alone, all the dew is still on the roses. And I walk with him and talk with him and he tells me I am his own. Now my cynicism says that if Jesus had the opportunity to finish that song, Jesus would have said, you know, I love nice tune, nice melody, some beautiful picture, but let me scratch out a few things here and let me tell you this. You may come to the garden alone, but when you get here, you won't be alone because my fellowship is with everyone that I love. I have lots and lots of friends. And if you're going to join the fellowship, and John says this is a fellowship that is an inclusive fellowship because he says, join our fellowship. I'm writing this to all the believers so that anyone who believes, they would be able to join our fellowship, our fellowship with the Father. Jesus is saying, it's not about being alone about being lived in community. And Jesus would finish that song and saying, and some of my friends are some of the strangest people you'd ever want to meet. It's us. Broken and warped and selfish and ornery and whatever else we may be. God says that's part of the fellowship. And that seems counterintuitive to joy that we would actually have to live with a bunch of ornery people. It's tough enough to kind of carve out with people who are a little different than us, and now we've got to deal with all sorts of different people. And then add to that that it's the the, the desire that we have of just kind of dealing with a short, small group of people. Just the difficulties that they bring, things that would seem to be joy robbers. There's an old saying that said that if you've ever tried to live in community and your heart has not been broken, you didn't do it right. And the reason for that is we will irritate. We will fail one another. We will betray one another. And while as ugly as that is and as much as that seems counterintuitive to joy, we are constantly reminded by the basis of what we've come into the fellowship to begin with, which is a reconciliation that was accomplished by somebody laying their life down for us. And we are reminded that whatever somebody's offense is to us, it's nothing compared to our offense to the one who has saved us. And we are reminded of the beauty and how much we are loved. We may be reminded of how far we have to go to become like him, but we realize that the promise that he has made is he who began this work in you will see it through to the end. And so even while I can't love people who annoy me, I have the hope Because Jesus has promised that he will make me more like him. There's reason for joy. And in the actual reconciliation, is there anything sweeter? There's a beauty. There is a great joy of having a shared experience with somebody. The first service I used the illustration for a few people, some of them who are probably here will appreciate it. There are a few people who will dress in an off-color orange uh, that are happy this weekend with the Clemson people. So if the Utens and the Wilmots are, you know, high-fiving it, you understand they have a shared experience of joy as Clemson 
edged by another school. Meanwhile, while the Begleys and the Smolies and a few others are commiserating, they don't want to suffer alone. They have comfort in this. From Ohio State. I could enjoy this because I didn't have a team playing anybody. So that was... Um, Camper has shared with us on several occasions as an illustration, when you have the greatest joys, you have this. Nobody wants to experience it alone. It is more fun to share your joys with somebody else. And so the one whose teams won and they're experiencing that taste of joy, they want to turn to somebody else and experience and see the joy there. They want to share that. Living in community enables us to share joys. We do share one another's burdens, but at the same time, there's joy in knowing we are not alone when we experience hardships and trials and failures. There is joy in knowing that I am forgiven and restored into fellowship. There is joy in knowing that whatever my joys are, somebody else rejoices for me. There is joy that I can have when I, something that you know, I not necessarily care about, but I'm happy that you are happy. That only comes in living in fellowship. John is telling us a couple of things here. I didn't put the glasses on, but I can see the clock, so I'm going to wind this down. But. We who hope for joy in a world that would seem counter to it can have joy and be filled in it and renewed in it and refilled in it when we are rooting ourselves in the gospel of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. Living in relationship with others. There is no alternative. He's going to ask this as, a, as I wrap it up because I only get to ask this once a year. It's the cheesy illustration that every pastor who preaches the first Sunday of the year gets to ask. But did you make any New Year's resolutions? That's a rhetorical question. If so, why? I'm not questioning whether you should or shouldn't, whether it's spiritual or unspiritual to do that. I mean, a few years ago, I decided I wasn't going to make any more New Year's resolutions until I realized that was a resolution. And... So there's no way of escaping it in that sense, except for just not even to think about it. But I assume if you made New Year's resolutions, or maybe if you shared my reasons for not making them, the whole purpose is you figure that somehow, if you are able to keep them, all of the resolutions, that things will work together and you will have your joy increased. Fair assessment? Most of us do things for the purpose of enhancing joy. Very few do things for the purpose of inflicting more punishment and misery upon ourselves. I would just challenge you to not find it selfish, but to actually seek joy. And remind yourself, and what John says, how you can experience it. We experience it in a lot of little things in this line. Some of them are trivial, some of them are not. Those are God's providences. They are the grace flowing like rain, not the source themselves. Christ is the subterranean source that we do not see, yet is continually at work by the power of his gospel. And we share that together. Not only we who are a part of this church, but all believers everywhere. Plug your roots into the gospel. Share your life with others. Not just those who are around you now, but 
make the commitment to meet people you don't know. Open yourself up a little bit. Ask about them. Share their joys and the sorrows because in the end, the result is mutual joy. John finds this so important that he begins this letter with this theme that will run throughout. It's not the only theme, but again, it spirals. You will find this throughout, and it is wrapped up in the other purposes. And the other purposes accomplish this joy.